Welcome back to the show. I'm Travis Chappell, and I believe that if you can connect with the best, you can become the best. So after creating 800 podcast episodes about building your network, I've come to realize that networking is really just making friends, if you're doing it the right way anyway. Join me as I make friends with world-class athletes like Shaquille O'Neal, entertainers like Rob Deerdeck, authors like Dr. Nicole LaPera, former presidents like Vicente Fox, or even the occasional FBI hostage negotiator, billionaire real estate mogul, or polarizing political figure. So if you want to make more friends that help you become a better version of yourself, then subscribe to the show and keep on listening because this is Travis Makes Friends. What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to another midweek mashup here on the Travis Makes Friends podcast. If you're unfamiliar, the midweek mashup, we essentially take one topic that we think is going to be interesting for those of you listening, and we go back into our archives and we search for some of the best people and the best advice that we can find on this particular topic. So this week's topic is all about how to build confidence. And for that, we went back into the archives and found a few really awesome people to talk about this. The first one was Lori Harder. Lori is an expert salesperson and a fitness enthusiast who has built her online brand to really really just incredible levels beyond just the direct sales industry that she came from and into the place now where she has her own personal brand. She has uh, her coaching business and masterminds and courses and her podcast and all the things that she works on from the branding perspective. But she also now has a uh, beverage company called Drink Light Pink. And Lori definitely knows a thing or two about how to build confidence. And she's really built everything that she's had from the ground up. And she's always been a really positive light in the industry that, that I'm involved in. And I've always appreciated her and her advice over the years. So she is the first person we're bringing on to talk about this. Next, we have Ed Milet. Ed is somebody who really changed the way that I looked at building confidence. He was the first person that I met that was able just to give me the quick and dirty, like just the, here's the exact way to build confidence. And he took it from something that was kind of abstract in the clouds and he brought it down to the dirt for me, which I've always really appreciated and always really loved this clip of the interview that we were able to have together because he lays it out so easily and plainly and simply. And he talks about it better than pretty much anybody that I know. So we bring Ed Milet in to talk about confidence. And lastly, we have Aubrey Marcus. Aubrey is the founder, co-founder of, of Onnit. And Onnit, he recently exited multi-nine-figure purchase that uh, that ended up going through, I think, last year or the year before. Um, but it was a supplement company that he had started with, with, not really with Joe Rogan, but with the help of Joe Rogan. Their first product, Alpha Brain, was one of the first widely accepted nootropics on the market and really ended up being the flagship product of that company for a really long time. And then they moved into all these other different avenues and became the total human optimization experts. And then uh, Aubrey was able to exit on it a year or two ago as well. And uh, he has some really, really great things to say about how to build confidence correctly. So enjoy this episode on how to build confidence, perhaps one of the most important things that you can do featuring Lori Harder, Ed Milet, and Aubrey Marcus. I, I really do want to take a little bit of a dive into what, what you said at the very beginning of when you started talking, which is you didn't ever think that this would be something that you'd be able to do. And I, I love that you said that because I think that a lot of people that sit out there and maybe listen you know, to your show and that see you speak on stage and, and do all these different things and, and be on the cover of magazines, and then they think, oh, there's just no way that I can do that thing. She can do mm-hmm. those kinds of things. So it's so refreshing to talk to people that are in your position that you're in now and realize that they started off with the same exact thoughts that every other person starts off with. How did you overcome those thoughts when you first when you first got started, Lori? 
I mean, it's been it's it's been a long journey. And you know, a lot of those things came. I love to share that a lot of my success came way later in my career. So if you're starting out later, perfect. And and you know, there's so many people who I know who are starting out even later. And I I think that's amazing because it's all divine timing and you have to trust that. Because if you don't trust that, that's where you're gonna get stuck anyway. It's just another limiting belief is that it's too late. It's never too late. But for me, this has been years in the making. And I really think that there was just a pain point of staying the same that started to hurt so much more than finally starting to confront some of my fears. And my main fear that I had to first overcome, I mean, there was a lot of beliefs I had to overcome of being worthy and self-worth and things like that. But for me, fear was a big one that held me back. Fear of judgment, fear of just not being able to do it, fear of having panic attacks. So for me, I had to first really work through my anxiety and panic attacks. So that was really, really big because that kept me from getting on a stage. It kept me from speaking in front of people. It even kept me from going out socially sometimes because I just, any center of attention for me would cause like, honestly, would cause panic attacks. So for me, that was huge. And I really did not start to overcome that until I started confronting my fears started doing fitness competitions, started saying yes to the things that I wanted with my fear. And just knowing that I just got to a point of knowing that no matter what happened, even if it meant passing out on the stage, it was still better for me to go and try it than to live with this like disappointment of betraying myself, of knowing who I was Hmm. and not showing up as who I was put on this planet to be. So I was willing to now face the pain of like maybe massive humiliation over the pain of this horrible, like knowing that you're meant for more and settling and not doing it. So ultimately the fear of, I don't know, maybe regret. I don't know if that's the right way of saying that, but the fear mm-hmm. of regret is kind of what took over the fear of failure. Is that, mm-hmm. that would that make sense? To, I don't know if that makes sense. Yes, that <laughs> it yeah. totally does. You know, I've always had this like innate gift that I think that we can all tap into actually. I think we all have it. Maybe you'll call it a gift, maybe you won't, but I really think it's valuable for your life is being able to really fast forward to the end of my life or to 10 years down the road and use that as a tool to see where you're at if you do not make changes and if you're going to be okay, who's around you, who's still with you, what job are you at, what does your actual day-to-day look like, what are you feeling like in the middle of the day, what are you feeling like when you put your head on your pillow at night and like if you can let yourself go there like on a daily basis of am I going to be okay if I don't do these things? Like, am I going to be okay at the end of my life if I don't do these? I think the people who, you know, ignore what they want to do are the people who also ignore the fact that we're not going to live forever. Hmm. And that it is only, we, we don't get, we don't just stay the same. You're either always getting better or you're going backwards. So if you are not taking action right now to move towards the person you know you are, you are moving backwards and your 10-year plan is going to be worse than where you're at now. Oh man, gaining clarity is such an important task. And I I feel that so many people just neglect doing it. I don't know if it's just from a a standpoint of they don't know that they should be doing it or it's just they don't want to take the time. But man, that's something I've really been trying to put into practice in my own life, Lori. And I'm glad that you brought that up because gaining clarity has brought so much, getting clarity on my long-term 
has allowed me to gain clarity on my short term. What do I need to do today in order to make sure that in five years from now, I'm where I want to be. I'm where I see myself. And if you're not doing that on a, on a, on a weekly, monthly, yearly, whatever kind of a basis, then uh, the, the way I liken it, the picture that I like to paint, Lori, is you're just kind of like a, a boat that's just kind of floating in the ocean. And you're hoping that you're going to end up at your destination. But unless you make yourself head in that direction, then the odds of it happening are literally none because mm -hmm. you haven't ever put that direction in place. And so if you don't know where you're going, then how do you know how to get there? And man, I think that's such an important piece of information for people to start to digest. Where did you first initially start seeing, seeing some success in your life? Depends on what you call success, because at first I was just happy that I was starting to do small things like, like becoming a personal trainer, okay. <laughs> because that in the beginning was like, I just had massive self-worth issues because I was raised in a really restrictive religion where I couldn't associate with anyone outside of the religion. Okay. And also I was homeschooled through high school. So I had these massive, you know, these limiting beliefs around not being smart enough, not being good enough. I just complete imposter syndrome at all times. So yeah. to me, even becoming a personal trainer, I was like, oh my God, I just know my first clients are going to be like doctors and they're going to be like, who do you think you are? And you don't know what you're talking about. This was a legit belief of mine. I was yeah, like, I just yeah. know I'm going to train doctors and they're going to call me out so I can't start. Right. <laughs> it was stopping me. And I'm like, who cares? Like, you know how to train people and you know how to get results and you right. can fix any mistake that happens along the way. And also, if you have a doctor, how about you ask him questions? Like, yeah, exactly. Can you talk into how to almost maybe ride the line between confidence and arrogance or delusion? The point that I'm getting at here is that I think this is what causes a lot of people that maybe shouldn't be yet selling their advice to start doing that is that they they get taught all these things about you should think positively about yourself and you should you should hold yourself in high regard and you should have all these thoughts about yourself and then they almost buy into a version of themselves that does not yet exist and then that's the version that they sell to other people not having earned the right to be able to do it yet i don't know if any of that makes sense but makes, makes but I, obviously confidence is crucial to being able to to achieve anything i know you talk a lot about confidence and a lot of things that i've learned about confidence and building it have come directly from you so i'm curious to hear how do you build confidence but not like overstep into this like world that doesn't even exist because you're almost delusional about delusional about how awesome you are yeah. if i had to have you air i'd rather you air on being more confident than not confident right however sure. my favorite people toe this line there's a nuance and it's very very difficult to do. And you have to be on guard about it all the time in your life. And that is, I love people that nuance tremendous self-confidence with humility. So I know a bunch of people with a lot of confidence that don't have the humility. They end up burning out. They end up mm -hmm. making mistakes. Their ego takes over. They spend the money they make. They think they've made it. They slow down their effort and they're just uncomfortable to be around, right? Then yeah. I know a bunch of people with a bunch of humility that have no confidence and you're constantly having to carry them in your life. They're a pain in the neck. They drain you. So the people I try to be around and what I try to be like is to have that self-confidence with humility because humility keeps you curious, keeps you humble, wants you to learn, wants you to expand, wants you to explore. You've never mm. really made it yet. It even makes me uncomfortable to some extent if I'm being candid, as you and I have been talking, as if I have all the answers or I have my act completely together because I know even yesterday, I had kind of a down day yesterday, right? So mm. I'm a human going through life. But having said that, to your point, most of the best influence in life, most of the lessons that you get 
are caught, not taught. And so if you're just teaching things all the time and you don't embody it, your level of influence and the change you can make is very small. But if people can watch you and hear you, then they're catching things from you. It's caught. Like with my kids, I could tell them, be a good person, read your scripture. But they catch most of it by watching me. Do do I do that? Right? It's caught, not taught. So that's why you have to do things in order to be great at teaching them because otherwise you're just teaching and people aren't catching. I'm really curious about like kind of some of the the things that you've taken away as a parent. You already just kind of alluded to one, but I I would like to start that with a a story that I heard you tell on somebody else's show was about your, your daughter was at school or something when she was younger and somebody said like, oh, you're rich or your parents are rich or something. And she she came and asked you the question. So I want you to tell that story and then tell us the answer that you gave to her and why that's something that's important to you. So, and again, I'm not, I'm done promoting the book, but I must tell you, I have a lot of parenting stuff in the book. And oh, great. Uh, help you be a better mother, a better father. So there's sports analogies and all this other stuff too, but there's a lot of parenting in there. So my daughter comes home from school, or she gets in the car, I'm picking her up for school. And I'm always worried. Like when you do raise your kids, like I can tell when I meet somebody who was raised with money most of the time, mm. especially men, not all the time, but most of the time. Like people always ask me, how do you know? And there's just a softness. There's a lack of an edge there because they didn't have to scrape and claw and battle for things. And I used to worry that my son or my daughter would possess that and that they'd lose that thing in life you got to have, which is this, this mental toughness, fortitude, resiliency, relentlessness. So my daughter comes back from, gets out of class and she gets in the car and she looks up at me, precious Bella, and she goes, daddy, are we rich? I said, what? She goes, everyone at school told me we're rich. And I said, well, I don't know how much money you got. She goes, I got like $20. I think she said, I got $14. And I go, well, I know for sure you're not rich. That's not rich. I said, I don't know whether daddy is or not, but I definitely know you're not rich, honey. Yeah. And I made that point because I wanted to earn things. And you flash forward, I have a story in the book where I actually talk about my daughter wanted a car. I could buy her any car she wants. She had to buy her own car. So she had to go get a job. She goes to get a job. And one of the principles in the book is one more try. My kids have been raised watching me make one more try, one more rep. One more phone call, one more text, tell her I love her one more time. It's all stuff in the book. So she goes to get this job. I write about it in the book. She goes down to, it's a pizzeria and it's a well-known one. And they're about to hire and they go, you are 18, right? And she says, no, 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 I'm 17. And she loses the job. So she calls me, daddy, can you come pick me up? They won't hire me because of alcohol there. And I said, okay. And then about 10 minutes later, she goes, hang on, don't pick me up yet. What she did is she remembered one more try. She walked across the street to a bakery and went in and said, hi, I'm looking for a job. And she ended up getting hired across the street at the bakery. It was one of the most proud moments of my life because she yeah. embodied one more try. Long story short, she ended up buying her own. It's a beat up used six-year-old Jeep, her own car with that money. And all of that, Travis, goes all the way back to that question she asked me in my car back in fourth grade. Are we rich? No, you're not rich. And then yeah. going from there, those are the type of things I try to do with my kids. Yeah, and how crucial to pre-draw on that principle that you mentioned just a second ago as well. You didn't just tell your kids mm-hmm. that you should always take one more try or you should always try one more rep or push one more time or ask once more. Like you didn't just tell them that. Yep. They experienced that. They saw you from the position of when they were first born, which is nowhere near as much wealth as you built now. Yeah. And then saw this principle flush itself out, flush itself out over time and saw what that did to the results that you were able to 
to achieve. And I think, I think that's, I think that's one thing that like, I really try to do as a parent, obviously I'm very brand new at, at being a parent, but yeah, that's the one thing I really, really like think is, is paramount, especially when it comes to my relationship with my kids is that I just never want to be the do as I say, not as I do guy. That that's detrimental. First off, I knew when I met you, I know guys that are going to be great dads. You are because there's a gentleness and a kindness to you, particularly with your daughter that will be beautiful. But one of the things that everyone should be cognizant of, and by the way, I make a lot of mistakes as a dad. I could give you a list of times. I'm like, why did I do that? But having said that's part of being a parent, but I didn't want to rob my kids from the things my parents gave me. My parents gave me a bunch of stuff they shouldn't have. But one of the things they did give me was I had to scrape and claw and fight and work hard and battle and overcome pain. And so when my kids would have issues at school with grades or teachers, I didn't intervene. I made them work it out. I made them go. I let them have some rejection. I, uh, I'm just a big believer in giving them the life experience because when you get back out into the world, the world's tough. There's lots of forms of child abuse, different levels. And you know that my dad was an alcoholic and I worked in an orphanage where my kids were truly abused, molested by family. So there are degrees of this and no one's more familiar with that than I am. But all the way down to not loving or hugging your children is a form of, it's a form of abuse. And there's another one that most parents are unaware of. And that is parents who don't chase their own dreams. You are robbing your children from seeing what that looks like. You're robbing your children from seeing you aspire and stretch and grow. It's the most insidious form of child neglect is a parent who does not chase their own dreams, who plays life small, who installs software programming in their children of small thinking and small life and small expansion, small risk, small growth. That's a form of neglect of your children if you're not doing that. So hopefully maybe for the first time as a parent, you now feel obligated, which is okay, to chase your dream, to grow, to expand. Because if you don't, you're neglecting your children because they're watching that software and they're catching it. And their self-esteem is affected by your lack of happiness and your lack of success more than any other thing in their life. You can't let your will to win be for sale in that regard. That's right. As as a parent, because then your your kid is going to look at that example that you set. And it doesn't matter what you say anymore at that point. That's the part that gets me is like a lot of parents are kind of are doing their best in terms of trying to instill the beliefs and saying like, you can do it, you can do anything and you can accomplish whatever you put your mind to. And it's like, as soon as I had my son, it just made me realize like, I never wanted to get to the point where I was telling my son that and he would look me dead in the eye and go, well, why didn't you? You got it. And I was like, ooh. And, ah. they, and he gets to an age, Travis, we all did where we figure out who our parents actually are, mm-hmm. right? When we're little, there are our world, but, yeah, yeah. but there becomes an age where you go, that's my dad, that's my mom. And you yeah. figure out who they are in the world. I never wanted my kids to figure out their dad was average. Their dad mm-hmm. was a fraud. Their dad was a talker. Their dad was just another dude. Because if you think your dad's another dude or your mom's just another person, you come from that. And so of course it affects your self-esteem. Of course it affects your belief. It's why so many people generationally struggle because mm-hmm. I've talked about this often. The whole point of the book, I, the second chapter in the book is about the matrix, about Neo. If you've seen the movie, The Matrix, and mm-hmm. I talk about your reticular activating system and slowing down time and how you can program your mind. I actually get very detailed of how the RAS works in your neocortex. Having said all that, why do I pick Neo in the matrix? Because if you watch the matrix, they believe Neo is the one. And you've heard me say this before, but in every family, there's a Neo. And every family, eventually, the one shows up, the one who changes that family. You see a happy, rich, successful family, at some point all the way back, they weren't at one point. 
And yeah. then the one shows up and they change the way that family thinks, acts, lives, grows, expands, contributes forever. In my family, I'm the one. In your family, you're the one. And the free people that are listening to this, you got to become the one in your family that changes it forever. And that's what I write about in the book is how to become the one. And I actually discuss what that the one looks like with the example of Neo. Explain to me your belief about balance. You got so many things going on. You got the family, especially when you were in, in like knee deep in the weeds of building the business and the kids were young and there's so much stuff going on. What do you believe about balance? Fallacy. I actually, I, it's one of the things I don't like that I did in this book is I reread it the other day and it's like, I almost think you would think, I think you can have balance if you read my book. And I don't like that because I don't think you can always be in balance. I think it's something to strive for, but not realistic. Remember this extremity expands capacity. This is something most people don't understand. The mm. more you do something to the extreme, it expands your capacity to do it again or bigger, ironically. So for me, the idea that this notion that, well, if I'm crushing it at work, I'm going to be not as good of a dad. Or if I'm really a great dad, I'm not going to be fit. The truth is that for me, when I'm crushing it at work, I come home, I'm a better dad. I'm more engaged. I'm more energized. I think this notion that we get tired because of hard work is actually not true. I actually think we're like batteries and we need to be charged all the time. Most people are tired from lack of ambition, lack of work, lack of engagement, lack of chasing something more than they are by chasing something. When I'm super fit and jacked at the gym, I'm a better business person. I'm a business athlete instead of an average everyday business person. So this notion that if I give a lot to one thing, another one gets less, that's just a flawed premise. It's a flawed belief system. There's no proof that that's true. And I can tell you that it's not true. The more fit I am, I've been better in business. The yeah. better I've done in business, the better father I've been. The better father I've been, I'm actually more focused in business. The key is be where your feet are. If I'm at work, I got to be at work. And when I leave there and I go into my home, I need to be in my home. When I'm at the gym, I don't reply to texts and emails, right? Mm -hmm. I'm in that world. I'm, I'm, I'm going to dispense some justice for an hour, yeah. right? I'm going to get after it. Then when I leave there, I'll be where my feet are planted then. So this notion of balance is, is not true. And this notion that because you do a lot of one thing, the other thing suffers is also not true. But because you believe it, it does. Mm, yeah. Stop believing that. So I, I want to ask you this question because I think I'm a big believer in self-awareness and leaning into things that you're really good at and then pressing harder on those things rather than like trying to perfect something that maybe you don't have any sort of natural ability to do. So one of your superpowers that I've observed over the years is you have this just innate ability. And that's why I said you're a prodigious people builder at the beginning of this, because you have this innate ability to make people feel like important or significant, or at least make them feel, feel good about themselves. Is that something that you consciously worked on? Was that something that was always something that was inside of you that maybe you, that you did a little bit better? How did that kind of come into fruition in, in your day-to-day -day life? You, like I told you the first time, you're really good at this. Cause you've hit on maybe one of the three or four things I'm only good at. And that's it. Everything in your life happens for you and not to you. I started saying that I think I was first. And then everyone says it now. Cause I said it about 15 years ago, but I'll prove it to you. Napoleon Hill says in the book that anything, when you go through any temporary pain in your life, and all pain is temporary, that if you can go through pain, on the other side of that, if you can get through it, is you get introduced to your other self. You get introduced to a talent or a gift or another version of you that you didn't otherwise know you had. For me, that usually in my childhood meant my dad's drinking, who ended up, by the way, becoming sober. He's the reason that one, the power of one more exists because he stayed sober one more day at a time and got tried to get sober one more time and helped one more person. So... But 
when I was a little boy, Travis, my dad, I had, I had three little sisters. When my dad would come home, I had to be able to read my dad. I had to be able to read him, be present with him. I'm talking like five years old, which dad was coming through the front door. If it was drunk dad, I need to get my sisters and probably have them go upstairs and have mom go take a shower. And I'd have to read this man when he would come through. I'd look up at my daddy. Was his tie on the right way? Was his hair disheveled? How did he walk? What was his pace like? What could I smell on him? And I would read my dad. That would be drunk dad. Or is it sober dad? He comes through. He looks great. He doesn't have any, it's not staggering or struggling or anything like that. There are little subtle things in his eyes I could see. We'd go in the backyard, play baseball, be a great day. But I started to learn this skill of reading people and being present with them. That was the first thing. My dad's drinking gave me that gift. The second thing was, if it was the wrong dad, I had to make him feel good. Hey, daddy, how was work today? Thank you so much. I'm so proud of you. And I would learn to make my dad feel good so that if it was the drunk dad, I would still get a decent version of him for my sisters and my mom. And so this adversity is what gave me my two biggest skills, my ability to read people and communicate with people came from the worst thing in my life ever, which was my dad's drinking when I was a young man. And so for those of you listening to this, on the other side of this temporary horrible thing you may go through or have been through is this other self. And eventually that gift or talent of that other self will be the thing you use to win, win happiness, win money, win influence, win contribution, win emotions will be this other thing. So that was maybe the one of the most important questions anyone's ever asked me. If you were going to choose one thing in 2019, let's say, to spend a lot of time on building quality relationships or getting much better at your craft, which of those two would you spend more time on? The quality relationships come from having quality that you can offer as value and then quality that you can exchange, the ability to give and see and like receive in return like that is the basis of a relationship it's an exchange and that exchange could be through laughter through smiles through compassion through understanding through information so the relationship because when you actually have that and that's intrinsic you don't have to like work hard on the relationship the relationships can flourish and mm. reach a level of depth fast you know like i have friends who are very close friends and very important contacts. Mm. And we can go a long time without seeing each other. But within the first few minutes of seeing each other again or reigniting a call, we're already into the deep waters. Mm. You know, we're already like, we see each other deeply. We know what each other stand for. We've been through deep conversations. And in some cases, challenging rituals or hard workouts or through the difficult and the celebratory times of life. So it becomes easier to maintain and hold those relationships without having to invest a bunch of time. So really, again, it's if you're in the right state to be able to give and receive with that person, then it's not about making that a focus. That's just going to happen naturally. You're going to attract people who are ready to engage with that type of relationship. That's going to be of mutual benefit and reciprocity. A lot of people, good people just don't find themselves in opportunities often, meaning like they're maybe not in the right vehicle or they they just don't get those things thrown in front of them and they just struggle with figuring out how to how to put themselves in those types of opportunities. How have you found throughout your career you've been able to put yourself in those opportunities? Well, I've done enough of my own 
work and research and learning and the knowing of myself that I present an interesting individual for someone to connect with. Mm. Like I have something to offer. And it doesn't matter if I'm sitting across the table here from Tim Kennedy and he's talking about the crazy challenging things. And he's one of the top special forces, UFC, MMA, number four in the world, middleweight, like one of the most incredible human beings in that expression that I've ever known and put himself through as much physical hardship and as much stressful, as many stressful situations as any human being. But I can sit across from them and say, this is what happened in this, you know, sweat lodge ritual. This is what happened in this ayahuasca ritual. This is what happened in this particular training circumstance or this challenge. And we can, even though we come from wildly disparate backgrounds, we can look at each other and acknowledge the learning and the understanding that we've gained from our own particular path hmm. and look at each other and say, hey, brother, I see you. And it's, it's that thing that I think was able to create the friendship with, with Joe. It was like, I had been on a vision quest since I was, I was at that point, like 30, 31, somewhere around there, 30, I think, maybe even 29. But I'd been on a vision, I went on a vision quest when I was 18. And I'd been on this personal, deep, challenging, introspective journey of experiential spirituality and psychedelics and understanding and philosophy. And I was a philosophy major in school and, and on that path rigorously for so long that when we met for a 30 minute coffee, it turned into a four hour dinner. Right, because there was enough to exchange. Yeah. So I think again, it it kind of goes back to that same thing. These opportunities may be there, and you have to like actively create them. Like I had to actively create the circumstances that would give me a chance to sit with coffee with Joe because I went to his comedy shows mm. and we'd like say what's up after the show. But in that context, in that relationship, nothing I'm going to say when he has me as fan. Hey, here's fan. I got 300 of them. Right. You know, there's no, there's really isn't an opportunity. And like when someone like runs into me and is like, Hey, I got this new CBD thing. Check it out. I'm like, yeah, cool. See you later. You know, but like, (laughs) that's not a really an opportunity, right? Like really an opportunity is developing a degree of mastery in something in, in mastery in yourself and offering that relationship. And then from there, seeing what other things will develop. Yeah, I love that you brought that up because that's kind of one of the directions I was looking at taking this conversation. I talk a lot about networking and connections, relationships, all that kind of stuff. And something that a lot of people say around this topic is be interested, not interesting, right? Like get to know the other person. But what I've found over doing 200 plus interviews on the show now is that a lot of the people who it seems that networking comes naturally to are interesting people, like what you were just saying, right? So you were interested. But you were also very interesting. There's a lot of things that you had to talk about that would just like pique somebody's interest or capture somebody's attention. Just like saying the stuff that you just said isn't just normal conversation, you know, vision quests and experiential ayahuasca journey. Like that's not part of normal conversation. It, it kind of is now, but it, back in 2000, it, it, well, yeah, back in exactly. 2010, it wasn't. And know? kind of is in your world too, right? right? Like right. me coming from, so quick context here too, and especially for people listening as well. My first exposure to any of this kind of talk about any stuff that you were just talking about was actually you. I think it was actually just listening to an interview that you did on Tim Ferriss's show. And I found the networking part really interesting. And then I started following your stuff and everything else was really interesting. And then I came out to your mastermind that you threw probably two, three months ago now mm-hmm. and kind of jumped into that full force. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it's been very, very interesting to me. Well, when you're actually putting yourself 
into the places where you're getting tested, whether that's psychedelic medicine or open relationship or a savage workout or the coldest ice bath you can or the hottest sweat lodge safely, of course, be mindful of that. Don't push that too hard. Obviously, there's bad cases in both of those examples, but putting yourself in situations where you are testing yourself and opening your voice and being vulnerable to tens of thousands of people and all and speaking in front of that, whatever, whatever your moment of this takes courage, that's really the key. The key is that, okay, you can think what you want about me. I know what I've done and, and I know, and I really respect what everybody else has done because we've all had our own journeys and our own challenges, but I don't need to try to be anything. I'm just, I know what I've been through and I'm very honest about, yeah, sometimes it's worked out great. And sometimes it has not worked out great. Sometimes it's been just a giant nut kick fiesta where I'm like one of those Shaolin monks that's just getting kicked in the nuts over and over again, except I don't have that placid look on my face. I'm rolling around on the ground and kicking and screaming and praying to God, you know, like, please help me. What is going on? So like you've been through that enough time, like showing up arrogant would be just foolish. Yeah, yeah. You brought up the open relationship part. Do you think that that's been a huge contributor to your inner feeling of like confidence in yourself it'd be like i'd be like asking like you're really strong do you think weightlifting has helped <laughs> you get strong you know like this is this is the resistance training this is weightlifting for your emotional mastery for your mental mastery for your insecurity for your need for validation for all of these things that you think that you know about yourself, you don't until you feel the pressure of having the one that you love, your special one, your girl, that thing that you've put all of this meaning and specialness into sleeping with somebody else and falling in love with them. Now you got to deal with some shit. Now you have to really confront all of these things. And I'm not saying this is for everybody. Just like I'm saying, I'm loading 500 on a squat rack or like half Thor Bjornsson deadlifting a thousand pounds. Yeah, that'll fucking snap your back like (laughs) don't just jump into this like don't just jump into a seven cup ayahuasca session either you know like be mindful open relationship is extremely challenging but taken in the context of resistance training for the psyche there's been nothing that's been more valuable because there's been nothing that's been harder you know like people people talk about this year and i got in this gnarly car accident you know split my face in half and whatever had several hundred sutures and i was in the hot what it was a freak accident right and i look back on 2018 and i was like oh yeah that was the easy challenge of the year Mm. because the hard challenges came from the challenges of my heart that came from the open relationship Mm. and that's where the real value i certainly learned some things from the accident and i certainly count that as a blessing but you know the physical pain and the physical healing it's actually kind of easy compared to the psychic emotional healing that I've had to apply to myself to get through and learn and progress through the open relationship challenge. That's it for today's episode. Thanks for spending some time with me and my friends. If you want to be better friends with me, then head over to travischapel.com slash team to subscribe to my free newsletter, Your Friend Travis, where I share what's on my mind about life building a business, raising kids, being married, and anything else I would normally share with my close circle of friends. That's travischapel.com slash team. And my biggest ask of you since I'm sharing my friends with you is to share this episode with a friend of yours that hasn't listened to the show yet. Then leave us a quick five-star rating in Apple Podcasts and in Spotify. It would mean the world to us as it helps us make sure that this show continues to be more valuable to you. Thanks in advance, and I'll catch you on the next episode.